Before there was IMDB.com, there was Zach and Dustin. You know those guys who think they know everything about a movie without having to go on the internet to look it up? That's us, but maybe only for the years 1981 through mid-1989. No, I'd say late 1978 through early 1992. (laughs) Either way, we know movies. And even more specifically, we know soundtracks from those movies. Yeah. This is $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. This is the podcast where we pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it still holds up today. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Hey, everybody. Dustin and I had the honor to interview martial arts icon Richard Norton. For the next hour plus, Richard discusses his career as a bodyguard to Linda Rodstan, James Taylor, Fleetwood Mac, and John Belushi. His start in film with Chuck Norris making movies with Jackie Chan and Cynthia Rothrock, and much, much more. So, without further ado, we hope you enjoy our career journey with Richard Norton. We run a podcast called $2 Late Fee, and I think I told you it's kind of a nostalgic trip down memory lane for the 80s and 90s. We don't remember those times. (laughs) (laughs) I know my four-year-old son keeps asking me. He's like, "What are the '80s, Dad?" I said, "Well, <laughs> someday Shol- you'll tell him it's leg warmers, shoulder pads, uh, acid acid-washed jeans, and et cetera, et cetera. And also the the camcorders. That was the first time camcorders came in was during the '80s. That's pretty funny, right? Yeah, and to, to walk around with a giant thing on your shoulder." <laughs> on dance. top of the shoulder pads that you wore under your jackets and everything. Yeah. Right. I, I might still wear shoulder pads for from time to time to, uh, you know. But how old are you guys? What, what are you, Zach? How old are you? Are you allowed to say? Oh, absolutely. I'm, <laughs> I, of course. I'm, I'm turning 43 this year, so. All right. So you hardly remember that. No, I, I know. I was just a young buck back in the day. And, I, yeah. and I'm uh, 41, so, you know, same, same, same. Yeah, but Zach and I bonded over our love of uh, of 80s movies and 90s movies and, and 90s martial arts movies. And so we just kind of randomly got to talking and we both like kind of we're all quoting the same random lines, very, very obscure things that most people don't know. We were like totally in sync on. So, um, you know, and, and obviously uh, you're you're in a you are in a big part of. Uh, of of what we love about that time period yeah and absolutely. uh so we really appreciate you uh jumping on with us to, to oh, talk no, it's, good. <laughs> it's good it's good to take a bit of a trip down memory lane I, you know the staggering thing is in my mind when i initially when when i think of the 80s it just feels like a very short time ago but my god you know when you think it's <laughs> nearly 40 years ago that's you know for the start of that that whole period of time, that's quite staggering. In fact, I was with, um, not dropping names here, but, you know, Chuck Norris is a dear friend, and we were together a few months ago, and, you know, I met him in 1979, and we think of where has that time gone? I mean, yeah. God, it's it's frightening. Yeah. 
and, and certain friends that you haven't seen for a while and you hear from them or you, you don't even think about age particularly, you know, and then suddenly it comes up and you just become aware of just what an incredible period of time has gone by. But at the same time, what an amazing journey. And to have been a part of, well, you know, even going back before that, the 70s and the 80s, you know, that was when I first went to the US and was just an incredible sort of start of a, a whole new journey for me in my life. When did you arrive in the States? 79. Uh, 1979 started. I Look, I was, um, you know, I used to run martial arts schools here in Australia. And um, funnily enough, I actually worked in the immigration department. Uh, I went straight from school into immigration. But <laughs> having started martial arts when I was 11, I was still training every morning and teaching six days a week. But, you know, they, they were the days when, when my mom, like a lot of other moms, would say, oh, you need the job, you need security, you've got to save up for your superannuation or, or social security in your case and, and all of this sort of stuff. So it was about job security, you know, so I went in there and I was still teaching every night and uh, that was my main passion, you know, was martial arts. And uh, Bob Jones was my partner, Bob sort of was in Decatur of starting off Zendokai, which is a you know our own eclectic brand of martial arts that we started in 1970, and in the late 70s, uh, Bob went to the U.S. and spoke with Chuck Norris and brought him out to Australia, and that was in 1978. And uh, I did demonstrations alongside Chuck in each of the states in Australia, and we just you know established an immediate friendship. And Chuck uh, said, if I ever get out to California, look him up, you know, we'll do some training, which was amazing. This was very early in Chuck's career as well. And uh, anyway, I was also, you know, in 73, I started doing personal bodyguard work. You know, my first ever band uh, worked with was the Rolling Stones and worked with different bands. bands. <laughs> James Taylor and all of those, but Linda, wow. those younger ones listening, Linda was an icon back then, you know, in rock and roll and also sound country and Western music and everything else. And Linda wanted me to go and work for her full time in the US. And that was a big decision for me because, again, I got to cut the security blanket and everything else. And I was pretty established here. But I remember she said to me, you know what, you can always go back home. Just try it. And that was the instigator. So off I went, and that was in 79, and arrived in California and gave Chuck a call. He was the first one I called, and we started training at his house every morning. But, you know, I honestly thought I wouldn't be staying there. I, I went, and I, you know, I said to everybody, oh, I'll only be gone a few months. I'll be back. And then, you know, nearly 40 years later, I'm still, still living there. So there you go. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, the fact that you worked with some of the most high-profile musicians of the late 70s early 80s is pretty phenomenal and and to leave that and to go into acting i mean did you pretty much stop uh bodyguarding and then go into film no no you know and this is people usually ask oh you know did you always want to be an actor i mean i had i had no aspirations whatsoever to get into the movie business mm. i went over as a bodyguard and of course you know, don't forget my, and I still say today that everything good in my life has happened as a result of me just wanting to be the best martial artist I could be. That was my, my passion. It's what made me want to get up every day. And, you know, movies, body work came as a result of that. So, 
When I was in California, uh, Chuck was in the very early stages of the Octagon, which really started my movie career and uh, very one of the first ninja type movies. And mm-hmm. he knew I could handle my own weapons and all this sort of stuff. And he asked me if I would consider playing his nemesis in the movie. I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's phenomenal. Because we were training in the mornings anyway. So we started rehearsing in his backyard, you know, got all black and white footage of us rehearsing octagon fights cool. with Chuck the Aaron, who was a coordinator on it. And uh, so it, it just kind of happened, you know, and so here I am on the set, you know, we shot a lot of uh, the stuff in Indian Dunes, you know, out in California. And I remember thinking, God, how good is this? You know, I'm on the set with some amazing martial artists and I'm doing what I love and I'm actually getting paid for it. No one will admit they still exist. Does anyone know? Efficient killers who work in silence, secrecy, darkness, unholy masters of terror, by magic. The man he once called brother is now his deadly enemy. must find the strength to become everything he hates. I wanted you because you could succeed. I need your help. The professional who wants targets. If you saw ninjas, you're seeing ghosts. (laughs) An heiress who wants revenge. I want to know who they are. I know who they are. Everybody wants something from him. A prisoner of his own destiny. He will find freedom only one way. Chuck Norris, Karen Carlson, Lee Van Cleef, The Octagon. So it wasn't, again, something I aspired (laughs) to do. It just happened into it. I still, though, I considered working right up in probably the early 90s in personal bodyguard work because I was still working with Fleetwood Mac. Uh, I worked with James Taylor and Linda for, goodness me, about 14 years. Um, And David Bowie, I worked with David for probably eight years on and off. And uh, so I was still doing that as well as doing the movie. So it was a bit of a combination. And I'm trying to remember, I probably stopped doing the bodyguard work around about the early 90s. And that was when I decided I'd had a pretty good career. It hadn't been shot or knifed or, or any of that. So we fast and figured it was a good time to stop and just focused more on the the movies. I'd say the uh, uh, the insurance companies nowadays on movie sets wouldn't necessarily allow you to be a, a bodyguard outside yeah, of right. uh, while you're on making a movie, you know? No, but you know what? It's probably... The, some of the movies I did, especially in the Philippines, there was a lot more risk in doing those than actually being a bodyguard. <laughs> yeah, right? I guess. Right? 
crazy shit we did, you know, with the safety factors. I mean, they didn't exist. We always called it the guerrilla school of filmmaking wow. when we're stuck in Thailand, the Philippines or whatever, because it was just by the seat of your pants, you know. It's not like doing a bigger movie these days where safety is such an incredible factor. I'm not saying we purposely went out of the way to be dangerous, but looking back, I, I wonder how, how I did survive, you know, some of it. It's crazy, you know, because it, it's just, uh, yeah, anyway, we can talk about that as well later. But yeah, but definitely. bodyguarding work, people, people have an idea of bodyguarding work. It's, it's um. You know, I got a lot of work with the bands. I think uh, some of it was because, first of all, I never, I didn't look like the stereotypical bodyguard. You know, I, I look, I, Bob and I used to always try and blend in, and almost we would look like a member of the band. Yeah. So yeah. there was no yeah. real heavy overtones or overtures with that work. You know, we would be there. I'd have an adjoining room. Everywhere they went, you'd be with them, but you blended in. So it wasn't, again, it wasn't a big sort of a heavy look, even though some bands preferred that, you know, the hunking sort of bodyguard. But I I always sort of looked at it as, as a little, you're a little bit like a, a, I don't want to use the word babysitter. That sounds a little strange, but you almost become good friends with them and you're there, you're a bit of a confidant, but you're like, you're like that Alsatian dog that somebody has and they're having a coffee and it's sitting there and somebody walks a little close and its ears prick up and it gets a little closer and then it starts to look at you and maybe it'll start growling when you get too close. And that was sort of the job. It, it wasn't about promoting violence and, it's, and, and essentially with the bands I work with, especially not being the heavy metal bands, people like James and Linda and David, they were very aware of the adverse publicity associated with any violence, yeah. whether it's being in the concerts or going out. So the last thing they would ever want someone like me to do is to actually punch somebody because right. it wouldn't be Richard Norton punches a fan. It would be James Taylor's bodyguard hits a fan. So yeah. it was about diplomacy. It was about, you know, just being there as the last line of defense, as I would call it, you know, so... This is why I'm saying that some of the movies I did, whereas you're almost going out of the way to kill yourself with some of the stunts you would try and do, the opposite was was true with with being on the road, you know. Albeit you, you know, there was always a million and one chance that something could go wrong, which is why you're there. You're not there for the everyday activities, which is almost like a big party, being on tour buses, traveling from state to state, and you know, great flights all over the country and seeing the world but but you are there for that again that million one chance that somebody like a you know a chapman turns up and tries to put a bullet in you you know and I, because to finish that off i mean i remember when i was with james somebody one of the fans said to me once in new york oh why does james need a bodyguard we we love him and my answer kind of came to be well why is john lennon dead yeah. Meaning it's it's not the average fan you're worried about. It's that irrational person that has a totally out there agenda. And and again, that's why someone like me would need to be there, hopefully, to be able to prevent something like that happening. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, obviously yeah. that didn't happen, fortunately, in, in your case. And uh, and you've maintained a relationship, at least with like James Taylor, right, over the years. And 
Yeah, very much. And and uh, my wife and I, Judy, we we visited Linda. You know, it was a couple of years ago. We went to San Francisco, Linda Ronstad, and that was fantastic to go and see her and uh, catch up. Look, I never made it. You know, people always say, "Oh, do you stay in touch?" And I I don't go out of my way because what I do know is people like that are surrounded by so many people in their lives, and the last thing they want is somebody whatever texting and doing all of that. Having said that, the great <laughs> thing about the relationships is that when you do catch up it's like yesterday and it's 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 walking down you know memory sort of alleys as it were because i james was in australia a few years ago now he did a tour with carol king and you know his tour manager got in touch with us and james had gone out of his way to try and find me and he flew judy and i to sydney we're in melbourne and you know just to hang out with him and his family and you so, know it was just the best because so you know uh, and and that's the important part is the relationships and the friendship you form it's not just a job and and that that means the world to me that you can have a bit of an influence on their life and that they value you and what you do but not just the job you do but as a person so it's great yeah i read somewhere in an interview you did a while back that you um would uh t- train some of your uh some of the artists that, or pull over the to the side of the road and <laughs> practice some yeah them, right? yeah that, look that, that was one of the attractions in a way that's a bit of a byproduct is um that i just as a natural course of things ended up getting a majority of the band whether it's james linda linda i used to train her like every day Wow. James was the same. We'd set up a punching bag in the dressing rooms before he'd go on the stage, just so he could let out a little bit of, you know, adrenaline and everything else and tension. And and we'd pull over, yes, and we'd be doing almost like traditional karate and stuff. I, I sometimes went to Martha's Vineyard and trained James in the bow, you know, which is a wooden kind of long staff in martial arts. And uh and and Rolling Stone magazine actually ended up doing an article on me training the bands. And the, and the theme of the story was that that a lot of these guys were coming back off the road in better shape than when they went on the road, which would then was a, a total anomaly, you know. Yeah. It just didn't happen. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, and again, some of them wouldn't. There's some that you'd never get out there, but... A lot of them just really put their heart and souls. They also realize the value of being in shape toward the end of a tour because anyone that watches any of these people perform know it takes a certain amount of endurance and stamina and everything else and mindset. So it was a good marriage, you know, when you think about it. So It's a good. little bit ahead of its time, actually, if you think about it, because yeah. that's very popular in the now now as far as like people doing yoga and keeping mm. in shape cardiovascular-wise back then. The, the reports were always about the partying and the whatnot. And this is, it's, you're a little bit of a groundbreaker there. No, no, exactly. I mean, look, you know, I work with ABBA and I would have, have them out every day, especially the girls. They love training, be on the side of beaches and whatever, swimming pools, doing a whole kind of what I would normally give a karate class, you know, along with push ups and sit up and stretching and everything else. And, and and even John Belushi trained him a lot. You know, I worked with John for, for a couple of years. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, you can't force anybody into it, you know. But uh, they just, as soon as a couple would start, the others would join in. As I said, not, not everybody. It's not everybody's cup of tea. But 
the main acts, they seem to gravitate toward that. And like I said, Rolling Stone were just fascinated in this whole idea of back then, as you said, of the sex, drugs and rock and roll and actually people trying to stay in shape and be fit. Yeah. But, but I, I want to also say this is also, it's, that's a whole other story, but what I, what I got to see was the artists as a, as people, meaning a lot of the perception of rock and roll is that all they do is do drugs and party and do all of that. And yes, a lot of that went on, of course, depending on the band. But the flip side is that what a lot of people never got to see was the actual passion of the artist. I mean, you know, yeah. it, you know, it might be like Lindsay Buckingham. You'd be on a tour bus, and I remember there was never time Lindsay's not playing with some guitar moves, trying to write music. And and I saw, uh, I, I watched. Um, there's a great Netflix docker on Keith Richards, you know, and pretty much his career. And just going to ask about even at this. <laughs> Yeah, what, what you miss and what people don't get to see is the absolute passion and the pursuit of excellence of someone like Keith Richards. I mean, that's what he does. They're, what they think they know is no nowhere even close to the real person. And yeah. hence, yeah. you know, even Mick Jagger would be four in the morning, I'd be sort of doing basic karate punches with him and everything. And again, if you look at Keith today, I mean, I can't believe the energy and the stamina he has on stage for a gentleman of his age. So again, it's sort of the other side that you don't always see. And I I was just glad that I could be a a part of that, that aspect of their lives, I guess, you know, at least while they're out there on the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Going back to working with Chuck, and you, you've pretty much said it already, but you, you're still close with him to this day, obviously, and worked on a few, several films with him. Um, and yeah. then, and then you said, as you kind of never had intentions to be an actor, but did you have any sort of formal training after the Octagon or anything? Yes, like- I did. Yeah, in fact, Octagon started that. I look, the, I, you know, I played. There was four of us that did all the ninja work throughout the movies, so. My claim to fame was I probably died about eight times in the octagon. <laughs> you know, in fact, I said this, even my mum back in the day, is that if you see somebody go splat, it's probably me. But <laughs> you're, you're you know, a I played, <laughs> yeah, I was the main nemesis, Keo, you know, and the reason we had that crimson mask and everything on is because the character's technically Asian. So they sort of darkened my eyes out and put the mask on. So I became like the martial arts Darth Vader. But I also then played Longlegs, who is this terrorist character, you know, and I look, funnily enough, I look at it now, I look very much like Chuck, you know, the old moustache, which, by the way, is fashionable yeah. back then. Yeah, yeah. still yeah. is to this day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Coming Blonde back. hair for that. But I had my very first line that I had to actually say was sit down. And, you know, in your head, you're going, sit down. Oh, God, this is, I can got this nailed you know and it's till it's till you're on the set and you got 50 people waiting and you know roll camera and roll sound and action and suddenly it occurs to me there's about 20 ways you could say sit down sit down sit down sit down (laughs) there's a lot more to this sort of thought and it was a very interesting process the stress of just delivering a line and that's when i decided well 
same as martial arts, one would really, it would be beneficial to get some training. So I went and did acting classes for quite a while. This lady, Zena Provendy, was in Los Angeles and uh, she was in her 70s then. She used to be MGM's chief acting coach. So I went and did a lot of classes to prime prepare for roles. Look, having said that, a lot of my career, though, was just learning by being on set. So I was lucky that I worked a lot. So that was invaluable as well, because acting classes can't really teach you what it's like to be on a movie set and how that works and the chaos that ensues. But so, I, you know, and, and the final part I want to say also about that, I realized into the game that my passion was still martial arts, that I didn't have the same passion for being an actor as I did for being a martial artist. Because if I did, I would have been in acting classes six days a week instead of on the dojo floor learning new techniques. But I was comfortable with that. It, it, it was almost just another way to, you know, doing movies was a way to economically be able to afford to just go and spend time at the karate schools and do what I love doing most, you know. No, no. I don't, I don't know if I call it crap. I call it, you know, and it's it's a uh, vintage. <laughs> and you've done yeah. so many different, so many different kinds of kinds of things in your career. Um, so you you've obviously you've played heroes and you played villains. Do you, which is more fun for you to play? Oh, the villains always more fun. You know, we had the old joke in the industry. You know. Uh, well, well, the reason, you know, if you're the, the good guy, you know, you, or if you're the bad guy, sorry, so to speak, you, you never get the girl and you usually get beaten up or killed. You know, that's just what goes for that role. But but by the same token, you can almost do anything with a character because if anyone, everybody almost ends up hating you, then you've done a good job. Whereas right. when you play the good guy, you've got to be a little more careful. You've got to be likable and all of that sort of stuff. So you can have a bit more reckless abandon when you play the bad guy. But listen, I didn't, I didn't care. Most, I, I ended up playing quite a few good guy roles, though most people don't seem to remember that. China O'Brien, Raging Honor, films like that, Under the Gun. The mob, out for revenge. Hitmen sworn to kill. A detective corrupt to the core. But this time he's going to do whatever it takes. Set me up. One man against them all wants out, but not before he scores his last big deal. 1.3 million dollars. Nothing can stop us. It promises to be one hell of a last night because everyone wants a final piece of Frank Torrance. Richard Norton, star of Cybertracker and China O'Brien. Happy Long from Natural Born Killers and Knights. One last shot at freedom. Outnumbered and under the gun. By the way, this is my excuse for, you know, for being a bit crap in some of the roles I did, you know, but that's okay. <laughs> there was quite a few, but but a lot of the roles were bad guy roles, especially in the Hong Kong movies with people like Jackie Chan, because they wanted to basically beat the crap out of the guaido on their sets. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I remember you specifically from your, your role in the Octagon, but then in Jim Cotta as well. His name, Kurt Thomas. His title, three-time world gymnastics champion. His assignment, 
a secret mission for the United States government. His only weapon, himself. And that's all he needs. Combine the discipline, the timing, and the power of gymnastics with the explosive force of karate. And a new, all-powerful martial art is born. Jim Kata. Kurt Thomas becomes Jonathan Cabot. He must penetrate a mountain fortress to compete in an ancient savage ritual. They call it the game. But nobody wins. And nobody lives. Until now. When gymnastics and karate are fused, the combustion becomes an explosion. And a new kind of martial arts superhero is born. Jim Kata. And to be honest yeah. with you, as a kid, I always thought, well, growing up, I wanted to be I, I want I idolized people on screen and I always wanted to be that guy. And I see you riding your horse and I said, Well, I don't care who Kurt Thomas is. I want to be that guy with the cool beard and the hair. So yeah. you were onto something there with uh the villain kind of standing out over the uh the lead, you know. <laughs> yeah, Jim Carter and we shot that in in uh well, it was Yugoslavia back then, you know, it was an amazing experience and uh yeah, the role, it, it's funny, a lot of those movies, I mean, I, I don't tend to ever watch the movies again, you know, that I do, but uh, there's, there's certain cult followings, you know, which is always very intriguing to me. Because, you know, the original idea of Jim Carter was uh, Freddie Weintraub and Bob Klaus. Freddie Weintraub was the producer and Bob Klaus was the director. Well, they were the producer and director of Enter the Dragon. Mm -hmm. And they also did Rumble in the Bronx, you know, Jackie Chan movie. And... So Freddie wanted to create a, a, an American Jackie Chan, as it were, hence getting Kurt Thomas, you know, who was an Olympic-level uh, gymnast, and uh, wanted him to be that kind of thing. And, and because I had done um, Force 5 with Fred and Bob Klaus. Force 5, starring five of the world's top-ranking martial arts experts. Joe Lewis. Three-time international karate grand champion, Richard Norton, world's foremost martial arts weapons expert. Benny the Jet Yurkides, world full-contact welterweight champion. Sonny Barnes, California heavyweight karate champion. Master Bong Suhan, eighth-degree black belt. And Pam Huntington, Ron Hayden, in Force 5. They called me and wanted me to be the baddie and Jim Carter. And again, I, I wasn't fussy. I said, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> off we got into the wilds of Yugoslavia as it was back then. And it was a great experience. Uh, you know, the fights were a bit disappointing because <laughs> Kurt, you know, was, was he needed pretty much sterile gymnastic conditions. I mean, the, the funny part looking <laughs> is that it's fight in the village square with a pommel horse. And anyone that doesn't go, that's a pommel horse, you know? <laughs> it's, it's kind of iconic, though, at this point. Yeah, it's, really it's what makes it so much fun. And uh, everything had to be very 
square, you know, in its, in its box, as it were, as opposed to sort of the Hong Kong guys, they would do the same stuff, but anywhere, on any surface, right. rough, right. Even, you know, and that was the difference. And, you know, that fight scene I did with Kurt was supposed to take a couple of days. We ended up shooting that in a few hours, and the whole build-up <laughs> yeah. was me slapping him around and doing all the normal bad guy stuff. And yeah. You know, then then we just ran out of time and it was a very quick, which was a bit disappointing for me because the idea was for me to treat him like a cat with a mouse, just slap him around for ages. And then eventually he would pull out his gymnastic moves to sort of do me in. In fact, there's one scene where you see me run out of camera and sort of we exit. That was purely because the sun was going down and we had to run into where there was a bit of bit more sunlight to get the bench. Oh, anyway, well, I will tell you that. That fight scene, uh, specifically, I, as a as a as a as a viewer watching, and I always thought that yeah. there was a mutual respect between the two characters at the end because you you had battled for such a long period of time. I mean, yeah, like you said, it, it you didn't take that long to shoot it, but I think as a viewer, it felt like it probably went on longer, or in my imagination. And there yeah, was like, I, I would just like to be more of a. I I would. The idea was for me to absolutely beat him down. And then as the last resort, he pulls out the gymnastic moves. Unfortunately for me, we got there too soon. You know, I had a couple of slaps and everything, and next minute I'm kind of got him hanging off my neck and I'm half dead. Let's talk a little bit about your work with Jackie Chan. You've done a lot of movies with Jackie. And how did you get started with him? You know, that that came about through a friend of or Pat Johnson, who was a fight coordinator. He... He did uh, Karate Kid and uh, Force 5. Pat used to be a partner with Chuck. And because I did some training with Pat, he knew me, of me and my abilities and everything. And he was the one that wanted to recommend it to Jackie that I would be a good one for one of his movies because uh, Pat did Rumble in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And um, was it Rumble in the Bronx? Yeah, I think it was. Or oh, oh, what's the other one? You know where they had wrestlers and everything else in it? God, I'm forgetting now. Whatever it was. Anyway, I, I was actually in, I was on tour again with, it's either James or Linda, I can't remember which, were in a little city in outside of Osaka in Japan, in Fukuoka, it's called. And I get a phone call and this voice says, hi, uh, this is um, whatever I work for, Jackie Chan. He wants you to come work in his movie. What's your price? I mean, <laughs> You know, and he says, oh, yes, Jackie Man. wants you to come work in his movie. What's your price? I said, hang on a sec. When do you when would you need me there? And they said, oh, you have to be here in four days. And I said, well, and again, I and she said, what's your price? And, and I just thought that was hilarious. But I said, well, I, I'm, I'm on tour. I can't. I'm committed for the next few months. So I had to pass on that. And uh, then whatever months later, I got another call when I was in L.A. And that was to begin to come and work with Jackie. And that was my first Hong Kong movie, which was Twinkle, Twinkle, Lucky Stars. And so off I go. I'm on the plane and I'm thinking, oh, this will be great. I'll be able to do this and that and everything else. And, of course, it was a very eye-opening experience doing a Hong Kong movie and how radically different it was from an American or a Western movie. And. You know, I you do a little bit of dialogue. First of all, you can't do anything you want to do. It's it's everything that the Jackie stunt team or coordinators want you to do, and you basically just have to copy what they want. There's no real input. 
Plus, you know, when the fighting eventually started, and I, I've said this a million times in interviews, but it's the truth, we are on the set. When I first started fighting Sam Hong, you know, who is, you know, the director and a legend in his own right, you know, we are on the set 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was just the most grueling thing I've ever been through, three and a half weeks to shoot the first fight I did with uh, Samo. Wow. In Twinkle wow. Twinkle. So it was a real eye opener, but I, you know, I got on really well with Jackie and with Samo. I think some of it's, I was always in really good shape, you know, especially back then. I didn't mind contact because of the type of martial arts I did. So they could cut, kick the crap out of me and I would be okay and just come back. And I, I also, I mean, Jackie always said that I had timing that was perfect for what he wanted in his fight scenes. And so people say, well, how did you do that? And I, there's nothing I specifically did. I just lucked out in the type of training I did, maybe the type of martial arts that I did, that I had the timing that just worked for their choreography. So with, with taking the bumps, you know, and all the falls and being okay with that and having the timing, it was a good fit. It's not that I had any better skills than a lot of other people around at that time, but because of that, and I would sh just wouldn't say anything, I would do as many takes as they wanted, and uh, that set up a good relationship, hence doing, I think I did five movies in Hong Kong with Jackie and with Samo, another one, City Hunter, we did with Jackie, which Wong Jing, director, did, and Andy Lau, he's became very famous. Um, a film called Magic Crystal and Cynthia Rothrock. That's when I first met Cynthia. But anyway, yeah, so it was a very different experience working in Hong Kong, but luckily, you know, I established a good relationship with them. But but anyone that says, oh, it must be so much fun working with Jackie and all of them, yeah. they're lovely people, but God, it's hard work. And it's only after the fact when you see the finished product that you get to enjoy it and have a laugh because it's it was grueling and by the way i i used to i was aware that i'm complaining and i realized they, that's how they did movies year in year out month after month after month and it just gave me incredible respect for their work ethic and the type of workplace they were involved in because there's no unions no overtime no none of that you just worked until the thing was finished wow so everybody everybody on set is, is working that way so everyone's just exhausted Yes. All the time. Yeah, you you pretty much had to find a little corner of a set to sort of try and sleep for half an hour if you had a chance. Because it's not like you're shooting, you know, you're not shooting every minute of those 18 hours, you know, because the difference with Hong Kong movies from a Western movie is we're doing fighting in a Western movie. You would choreograph the whole thing. You'd shoot a master, meaning one shot of the whole fight. Then you'd go in and do coverage. The way Jackie and the boys worked in Samo was they really didn't limit themselves by locking themselves into a choreographed sequence. They would know elements of what they wanted, but they would choreograph and do the first half a dozen moves, pull out a stunt mattress, they'd all lie down and try and figure out what the next moves were. And then you'd get up and do them. They'd do a quick edit that night and decide how much longer they wanted the fight to be, which direction they wanted to take it in. So it was quite freeing, but it also resulted in it taking a long time, you know. And, and it seemed like your, those fight scenes were always faster than Western fight scenes, correct? Like well, 
Yeah, not so much though, Zach. It was more they went under, you know, when it was film, as in, no, it's all digital now, but when it was film, you have 24 frames a second, you know, pretty much with a, with a standard film camera. And they would under, they would sometimes shoot it at 22 frames. Okay. So what they wanted mainly was power and precision rather than you focusing on being too fast. And, uh, and uh, that little bit of speeding up was speeding up was done in camera, you know, if that makes sense. So yes. that's why a lot of the stuff looked a little faster and it was, you know, and, and before that, I was even told by Freddie Weintraub when they did Enter the Dragon, even to get a little bit of extra speed of something like Bruce, they used to cut frame. In other words, they were just t in editing, take a few frames out. So a move would get from there to there. Mm -hmm. rather than there, 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 which resulted in the same kind of speeding or speeding up of action. So even some of the nunchaku stuff looks a little choppy, and that's due to sort of cutting frames. So oh, that's cool. it was it was just the way they did it back then, you know. Uh, you know, in the Hong Kong movies, I dare say, I'm not sure how they do it now. It's been a while since I've been there, of course, but that's what resulted in stuff looking faster. Wow, okay. Did you have a favorite out of uh, out of the movies you did with Jackie? Oh, um, not really. You know, they were all they were all different. Uh, Twinkle Twinkle, of course, being the first one. You know, that was fun because to get to work with people like Jackie and Summer, who are just the absolute maestros of of action movies and directors, you you can't get better. In fact, I still would say, especially someone like Summer Hong, is just the most creative action director I've ever worked with. Of course, everybody knows of Jackie's skill and ability. I got to meet Kurata, this Japanese actor who was very famous in Hong Kong at that time and amazing sort of martial artist. Um, Yin Bill, who was like, you know, one of, again, another icon in the Hong Kong movie. So meeting all those people on the tube was phenomenal. Millionaire's Express or Shanghai Express we shot later on. Did some of that in Thailand. That's when you know, I worked with Cynthia on that, Roth Rock, and that was a great experience. City Hunter was another fun one, which was a lot more comedic than a lot of Jackie's, Jackie's normal kind of uh, genre movies. Um, so, yeah, no, that was good. I guess a highlight for me was City, uh, was uh, Mr. Nice Guy, because we shot it here in Melbourne, Australia, and some of it in oh. Sydney. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so that they, um, Samo really wanted me to play the lead bad guy in that. And so to come back and actually do it here, you know, at home was, was amazing. Welcome to What's Cooking Tonight. Anybody hungry? Television's most popular star, who is that guy, is not what you'd expect. I know that guy. He's a gentle soul. I know you. He's Jackie. You're a nice guy. Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> but if you make the mistake, I don't even know her. Of getting him mad, yeah! you'd better get out of his way. Chan proves to the world 
Nice guys finish first. Mr. Nice Guy. Just to wrap up in discussion about Jackie, um, seeing you in City Hunter, it was one a highlight for me because I was able to see that on the big screen. Um, you know, and many of your films were on video and we both, Dustin and I both worked at video stores back in the day. And I think that's where mm-hmm. <laughs> our love of a lot of these movies come up. But seeing Absolutely. City Hunter in the theater and having... I mean, that, that film, you, you're right, that film was geared more towards a younger audience, I think, because it's based on a comic book. It's such, But it's such a fun film, and you have some really great moments in that movie. No, and that's the key. It, it definitely was a bit, it, not a risk, but it was different for Jackie, because even though his style was always kind of comedic, I mean, Jackie used to have, you know, he told me he had every silent movie on video, whether it's Charlie Chaplin, Three Stooges, all of this and be, and he got a lot of his ideas for gags from those movies because he always he said to me i want people to be able to turn the sound off no music no dialogue and still enjoy the physicality of the fight scene and you see that you know and like charlie chapman was always about him trying to get away from the bad guy and in the meantime he'd get him to run into ladders or yeah. Obstacle. You, you, you notice the use of props with Jackie in his movies, and a lot of it came from the appreciation of that silent movie era. Um, and and City, so City Hunter was a bit of a risk, but I also, you know, realized yes, if, if for me doing that sort of movie, if I didn't jump on board and accept being almost like a caricature, you just didn't fit in those movies. You know, everything's larger than life. You know, I couldn't look somewhere as a bad guy and sort of give a very understated look. It had to be, ah, ah, ah you know. <laughs> but that was the fun of it, you know. That was yeah. the character sort of played. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was an enjoyable process, albeit still still difficult at the time. That fight scene I did with Jackie at the end took six and a half weeks to shoot. Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> I, wow. I used to shoot movies in that amount of time. But, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, but listen, you you know, I used to watch them set things up, how they choreographed, how they shot it, and it was what a learning experience because I for bet. that style, I, I mean, they're the absolute best at what they do. There's no question about it. And I also, you know, to finish off on Jackie, what what's great about a Samo and a Jackie or even a Donnie Yen is their ability to sort of move with the times. Like, you know, Jackie did a lot of very – almost traditional Chinese style movies, whether it's Wing Chun or whatever. But he also realized he had to do movies that involved a Western style of boxing. They, you know, uh, Samo and Donnie Yen did a movie where they basically were the first to put in, in Asian terms, MMA style fighting on screen. And it was so creative, but so, so smart that they realized they couldn't keep doing the same thing over and over because audiences they just want to be entertained and i don't care how good what you do if if you do the same thing five years later you know as you did five years earlier 
even though it's still just as good, they go, oh, okay, I'm bored, I've seen that, what else can you do? And I love that Samuel and Jackie were able to evolve with that. You, you look at the acting of Jackie in Karate Kid or Samuel Hong in some of the later movies, it went from this very gregarious kind of over-the-top acting to just being incredibly still and emotional. And, yeah. and you go, wow, how good are these guys? So you realize they were... They were doing what they did was suitable for a particular time, you know, of their style of movie. But when they decided to evolve, you saw just incredible dramatic sort of abilities with what they did. And I think that, that people should take their hats off to that, you know, Absolutely. that ability. Mm. So you, uh, you mentioned Cynthia Rothrock. We mm-hmm. are huge China O'Brien fans. Uh, as I'm sure our audience is as well. And um, uh, I know a magazine once said about the two of you that you were sort of the um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers of the martial <laughs> arts world, uh, which I love. And I, and I am I correct in saying that you guys have done nine movies together, I believe. Yeah, correct. yeah and, it's around nine movies. Yep. And so you, uh, so obviously that's a collaboration that, you both enjoy uh, continuing and, and working. And um, wh- what is your sort of, you know, fondest memory of, of, of working with her? Cynthia Rothrock, five-time undefeated world karate champion, yeah! is facing the biggest fight of her life. And this time, the stakes are much higher. If she loses, she loses her life. As an instructor in the School of Street Survival, she encounters an Australian cop wanted for a murder he didn't commit. These cops are bad news. You're a cop. Yeah, they don't trust me. Maybe I don't either. Now, a videotape that captures one of the darkest police secrets is about to put their lives into a tailspin. I gotta get that tape. The tables turn and the hunters become the prey. Now they must stay together to face a brutal fight. A fight for survival. Power-packed action. Pulse-pounding suspense. No-holes-barred action. Rage and honor. Oh, just that we're, we were great friends. That's probably the fondest memory. See, a lot of times when you do movies, you, of course, you get to work with certain ones over more than once. But a lot of times it's a one time you're in a time capsule, which is a movie set and the shooting schedule. And you say, oh, we'll stay in touch and you disappear and you hardly ever see those people again. With Cynthia, we just, you know, we establish a really great relationship. I believe we had a really good rapport on screen. Hence the yeah. couple of China O'Brien's, yeah. couple of Rage and Honors and different movies, Magic Crystal. So the fun thing for me was just going back on set with an old friend that you knew, you knew their personalities, you got on together, you knew this fighting style of, of for me, in this case, Cynthia. So that made the job a whole lot easier, you know. So the collaboration was, again, like a, like a nice glove that you're used to wearing, you know, over and over. That <laughs> makes sense. As opposed to, gee, I don't know who this person I'm going to work with now. I don't know what they're going to be like. Are they going to be nice, you know, a bit nasty, blah, 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 blah. But to go into this nice 
well-worn sort of relationship made made the whole process easier and better and especially when we went to Hong Kong because it was you know the thing I would say about being over there is that you know a lot of the movies that we did there you're you're pretty much the only white person on set meaning Guaylo you know they would call you now I'm not saying that in a derogatory term that's just the way it was and most of them would only speak Mandarin or Cantonese so it's pretty much everybody here and it's you and so to have a little partner in crime, you know, is in Cynthia and we could have a laugh and joke and, and, and understand that process, that also made it a lot easier and a lot more pleasurable to do. You definitely become tighter probably because of that and uh, yeah. develop a really great relationship. And still are today, you know, we, we, it'd be great to do, I'd love to do something where you've got the 80s sort of martial arts stars, whether it's Don Wilson and all these and, yeah. and do something. Together again, a bit like an you know a, a, a present day Expendables in the martial arts sense would be. Yes, yes. And I would reckon there's a lot of interest from a lot of the older fans to to see something like that. But 100. percent We, we well, should just get that started. Why don't we just do yeah. that? Why don't we we'll start a GoFundMe <laughs> and we'll. But to me, yeah, Cynthia's great, you know, and and she's obviously she was a world forms champion, so she's very great with a with very had a lot of expertise, you know, with the martial arts on screen and everything else, new camera and understood the whole genre. So, yeah, she's she's fantastic. Yeah, not to sound cliche, but it, it's it's a natural one-two punch when you've got the the natural ability with the martial arts skills mm. and then the acting on top of that. And you don't necessarily need a stunt coordinator coming in and, you know, advising you on how to do your your scenes. Yeah, and for most of the time we did all our own stuff. You know, albeit, you know, yes, we they had doubles in the Hong Kong movies. And actually, the reason for that, I remember when I was being doubled in, I think, uh, City Hunter, I said, Sam, I've got better timing than some of your people. And they basically explained to me, and Jackie did that, that's the only time their actual stunt people and doubles made good money was when they doubled one of us. Hmm. So pretty much at any time they were able to be back on or whatever, they would tend to put a double in there, you know? And I went, oh, okay, well, then I understand, you know? The the other reason, of course, is that you can imagine you're a Jackie Chan and you're doing these complicated and sometimes dangerous fight scenes, weapons are involved. It kind of made sense that you wanted one of your own people that you knew, that knew you, that knew your timing and everything else, and it just made the whole process a lot safer. So, and it, again, it's just what they did. You, they had any chance if they could put a double in, they would want to do it. It's uh, you could probably argue why it would be better to have me in the whole thing or or Cynthia, but you're bucking the system, so to speak. You know, you go okay. Yeah. You guys know what you're doing, so that's that's the way it was done. What uh, what is the craziest stunt that you've ever been involved in, either from an acting perspective or a, or a coordinating perspective? Oh God, <laughs> that's my wife talking in the background. No, I, <laughs> it probably, you know, it, there were, looking back, there are a lot of crazy stunts, you know, like. And, and and I could go on and on. You know, there was a time in the Philippines when I was doing, uh, I don't know, Mission Terminate, there's an ominous title, or whatever it was called. And, and they were the days, like I said, that you would literally try and come up with the craziest thing to do with, without having any real idea how to do it safely, you know. 
Yeah. I remember there was a there was a waterfall that I thought, God, it'd be great if I rappel over this waterfall. It's like three three hundred feet high, you know, over this right. waterfall. And I thought, you know, and so we put a line across, and I said, you know, we had no way of rigging me properly, so I had took off my army belt that I was wearing because I was supposed to be American military. And I strapped it over the wire and kind of threaded my arm through, you know, and how so I could hold onto it while I'm holding an AK-47 and I was going to just rip across. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, hey, that'll be fun. You know, it'll be something different. And then I, I, I said to one of the local stunt guys, oh, we should see the tension of the wire. And he got a little bag like about this and was going to send it across to see how the line sort of the tautness of the line and, I said, no, but that's not nearly my weight. We <laughs> my weight because it zipped across, and we put something close to my weight, and they went across, and the line kind of goes like this, and it's just stuck in the middle. Oh no! And it suddenly occurred to me, well, that's not too good. If I do it, I <laughs> didn't even have a line that would enable me to get pulled back wow. to safety, and nothing else but my elbow through this belt. It's not like there were extra safety lines. So it's shit like, but we still did it. We ended up, you know, going across and I'm shooting away. It's only in hindsight you go, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> or, or I did uh, with um, a Roger Corman film that Sirio Santiago directed, Equalizer 2000. Equalizer 2000. The nuclear apocalypse is over. The battle for survival rages on. Renegades rule the highways, laying waste to the post-nuclear world. Out of the wasteland comes a rebel. A rebel with a nuclear arsenal he can hold in his hand. Equalizer 2000. There's a piece of garbage out there named Lorden. I'm going to kill him if it's the last thing I do. They took his land. I want that gun. They took his girl. Now, he's taking them all straight to hell. without limits. A warrior without equal. Equalizer 2000. I had this idea that we could do a 180-degree spin of this Mustang because we're getting chased by the baddies and I'm shooting back as a convertible. And I thought, oh, I'd love to jump on the bonnet of the car or hood of the car and turn around and keep firing. Well, that was all very well until we had to sort of spin the car a little bit. And I've got nothing holding me on. So I'm like up on the bonnet of the idiot. The car sort of starts to spin. And I, I must have gone, you know, 40 feet into the air. And so then I figured, OK, we need somewhere how to sort of at least strap me like a tripod onto the hood of this or bonnet of this car. 
So we figured out doing it, but it's things like that or explosions. You know, there was a time in China where Brian that we're going in and out of these explosions and then you just suddenly realize, wow, this is this crazy stuff. In fact, the <laughs> special effects guy on the first China O'Brien ended up dying because he wanted to, you know, Bob Klaus wanted to do another run with his vehicle going in and out of these pots, you know, that would go off. And it was me in a car with Cynthia and he wanted another take because he wanted to be a little bigger and special effects guy was resetting the pot you know that were the days when you had to have a like a, a lead to a battery to ignite you know the the explosion and suddenly he's setting it up and boom it goes off and he lost his leg he got flown to hospital in an air ambulance and next day he uh, he was dead so oh, God, you sort of go well okay this guy's supposed to be an expert what he do what he does it just illustrated how dangerous some of this stuff was and yes and some of the you know i i had to jump off a truck a moving military truck in one of these philippine movies and it drives along i'm supposed to jump off and start running toward camera and behind the truck were these massive huts that they'd filled with petrol and by the way it's not like bits of pieces of stuff. These were just like literally bags of petrol that they would let off. So there was no control over that. And I said, the truck's going and I jump off and I fell over, you know, I hit the ground and boom, went like this. And I remember getting up and thinking, man, I gotta run because the special effects guy that was looking after explosion was in a position that he couldn't see me jump up. So he didn't even know I'd fallen over. Oh, no. so Stand, I should have been way clear of it. The explosions go off, and you can even see in the movie I'm running, it's like whoosh, you know, behind me. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so, anyway, that's why I say could go on and on with the crazy stuff we did, you know, and, and how it could have turned out. It was just listen, though, what fun! I mean, talk about like kids in a sandbox, you know, yeah. you just got to play with the most ridiculous stuff, but. It doesn't happen on movies that I do now for obvious reason, you know, for insurance and safety and actor safety and everything else. There's reasons insurance companies won't let actors do serious stunts, even if the actor's gung-ho to do it, because look what happened with Tom Cruise when he broke his ankle on that stunt jumping the building. Suddenly the whole movie has to shut down, you know, for a while while he repairs, and that's, that's one of the reasons, so... I was going to ask you uh, how your wife Judy feels about uh, <laughs> all that, all the all the stunts. Yeah, listen, she's she was fine with it because you know I was doing that when we met. You know, we've been together 33 years now, so she oh, she great. knows and and she also is well aware that on on the sets that I'm on now, again, it couldn't be safer. Right. Meaning right. The, the whole idea of say a Mad Max as 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 full on as that sort of movie is. We would like to say that the stunt is probably the safest thing you could possibly attempt to do in that mm. everything is rehearsed. All the variables of what could go wrong need to be addressed. Safety parameters put into place. Knowing that the chance that something could go wrong still could happen. And if it did, it would be catastrophic. Hence, the rehearsal and the preparation should make it the safest thing you would do. So... And plus, you know, I'm mainly involved in fights. I was never the high fall guy or 
I did do the big fire burn in going through the, um, getting kicked through these flames in octagon. Chuck sort of kicks me through this wall, mm. but I didn't come back through the flames. And luckily, I was smart enough to leave that to the people that specialized in that kind of dangerous stunt. So yes. the worst thing that happened to me these days is I get kicked in the head or whatever, and I'm used to that. So I'm okay with it. <laughs> No, I leave the rest of the to the experts. <laughs> You've done a lot of uh, behind the scene work in the past few years on um, Spider-Man and uh, Mad Max and um, and working with Scarlett Johansson, right? Ghost in the Shell. So, yeah, I um, I got asked to go and uh, train Scarlett in New York and ended up in uh, Los Angeles. And then thankfully we just got on so, so well, established a great friendship and she had a lot of trust in me. So she was everyone who really pushed production to get me out to New Zealand. So I was there for the whole shoot training her. I wasn't the choreographer on that. Another friend of mine, Timmy Wong, was doing that. But I was there to train uh, Scarlett, basically give her the tools in New York and L.A. of how to punch, kick and everything, then teach the choreography and then try and help to make sure she looked good on camera. So that was that was a lot of fun. And. Same thing with uh, Suicide Squad. You know, I trained Will Smith at his house for a while before that, Margot Robbie. We did training up here in Queensland and then, of course, in Canada when we shot the film. All incredibly wonderful people. And, you know, I say to people, you, the reason these people have careers they have is they demand such an incredible level of excellence out of what they do, including when they train for something like an action scene. It, it's a joy to work with Scarlett, Margot, Will, and people like this, you know. But to answer your other question, yes, the last five years it's been more behind the camera. My my work has been starting, you know, with Mad Max, X-Men, just finished X-Men that's out next month. Um, that's coming out. Did uh, Triple Frontier, a Ben Affleck movie, Charlie Hunnam. We shot that in Hawaii in L.A., so it's more being behind the camera doing fight choreography or fight coordinator work, um, which has been a lot of fun. You know, I, I don't really mind. For me, it's a matter of economics. As long as I'm still working in, in the industry, I'm happy. Because, you know, I'm, God, I'm 70 years of age in January. So the, those sorts of roles, you know, thank you. Yeah, the roles I used to do, they would rather have the 30-year-olds doing it. And I understand that. You're, a, you're just a product. So... The joke now with Judy is that if I get a role now, it's usually it's somebody's dad or an aging gangster or something. You know? so, <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you very much. But out of my interview back there. But, uh, but, but it's, all, it's all fun. And, you know, I just finished, you probably saw it, it's a smaller independent movie. Ironically, it's called Rage. I already did a movie called Rage that I was the lead in, but it's called Rage, but it's a crime thriller. It's uh, I'm a lead detective, probably the second lead, and it's no action. I don't get to punch anybody, and uh, it's been a tremendous amount of fun doing pages of dialogue in front of the camera and working on character stuff. So who knows? It ain't over till it's over, as they say. You know, I'm I'm up for anything at this stage. Well, you you had uh, you said in another interview I was watching that um, you talked a lot about the journey, uh, the process with martial arts and always being the student and learning and always being open to learning and and always this idea that you never stop learning. You're always learning. And and the minute you stop or the minute you think you've got it all figured out, you get stagnant and you start to, you know, you, you there's a pro can you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman, and by the way, my whole life has been about that. As a martial artist, as I said, that's my passion. And I, I, I believe that with what I do, well, I don't believe it's the truth, that given the desire, I have a chance to learn something new every day of my life because it's so complex martial arts and, and there's there's so many different arts and different directions and the evolution of things like brazilian jiu-jitsu which i've been doing for over 30 years now it never stops evolving so there's a chance to learn something new and when you think about most people's lives and i'm i'm, I'm it's it's a generalization but most people are living what i call previously learned skills you know as a kid you learn to ride a bike you learn to play football you learn to play tennis as an adult, you're generally doing a job that you could probably do in your sleep. It's a nine to five. Mm-hmm. You're playing. You no longer have to learn to ride a bike or anything else. Um, so it, you become a little bit robotic. You go home and look at the same TV shows each night. You know, you go to bed, you get up, do your day job, and, and this goes on and on. So the cycle just keeps repeating itself, and I find that a lot of people are waiting till they get to 60, 65 and retire to actually start living, you know? Mm. Oh, well, once I've got this and I've, you know, got out of the struggle of making a living, now I'll start to experience travel and everything else. Yeah. I've been blessed to be able to travel for the last 40-plus years of my life. Martial arts gives me the opportunity to never stop learning, so I've tried to apply that to, to all areas, which is why I wanted this role in this smaller independent it's a bit scary to go in and learn pages of dialogue and not rely on action. But but the challenge of that is should be what life is all about. Like there was a guy, uh, Buckminster Fuller, who was you know considered a genius. He came up with the mathematical equivalent of synergy. He, he invented the geodesic dome. He oh. wrote a book called Critical Path, and he talks about goal setting where – when people set goals, there's a reason that goals are never as fulfilling as you think they will be. Meaning, I might grow up in Croydon, a suburb of Melbourne, and I start karate. And I go, well, if I, I'm going to enter the Croydon Karate Championship. If I could win that, oh, that would be fantastic. I'd have achieved everything. I wouldn't need to do any more. Suddenly, you go in and you win it. Oh, gee, I wonder if I could go in the Melbourne Karate Championship. And blah, 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 you go in it. Oh, I wonder if I, and the reason that all these goals aren't as fulfilling is to continually keep you moving. It's to set new challenges, to challenge yourself in other directions, because it's about movement. You know, life is about movement. And so I figured that anything that stops still long enough is probably dead, whether it's a plant, whether it's an animal, whether it's a person. So the idea of thinking you've achieved whatever it is, kind of has a certain stagnation to it, meaning that as a karate person, I think, oh, this is why I hate the word master in the martial arts, because that that leads to one thinking that you've mastered it, so what else is there to do? I believe that excellence is always your pursuit. You're always trying to achieve excellence. Excellence, I believe, is unattainable, but the journey towards excellence isn't. And you should always be trying to get out of this mediocrity that permeates society today. Everybody, oh, I'm good enough. I've achieved enough. I'm okay. I'm healthy enough. You should be striving for, for better in all those areas. Hence that, that continual goal setting and that 
that journey toward excellence that keeps you moving. And that's that's kind of my philosophy, you know. I, I just don't want to think that I've achieved because I believe you suddenly start to, well, you stop. And, and you know who uh, recently I saw a little interview with Michelle Obama, which I it resonated with me. She's got a book called Becoming, and I think she's just an amazing person. And the quick little quip was about becoming, and she said she hates, not hates, but doesn't like the idea of a parent or people saying to a kid, oh, what do you want to be when you're growing up? As though, gee, I want to be a fireman, I want to be this, or in my case, I want to be a martial artist. Once you become that, that that's kind of it. When she was more or less saying, I want to be something different every five years of my life. I want to become something else, which, you know, is a connotation of always moving, always learning, always striving to improve yourself. And I think that's a fantastic way of looking at things, you know, stop being mediocre. I don't want to be mediocre. I want to be just better, or at least the best I can be. And it doesn't mean you'll be as good as a lot of other people you'll compare yourself with. Sometimes you'll be better than, sometimes not as good as. So you're either going to get in bit of an ego about yourself or you're going to feel a little bit doubtful about yourself so it's about your own personal journey but just keep striving keep striving you know because final thing I'd say on that is that the time in martial arts that you start to look at age for instance as a limiting factor now yes in in reality it is a limiting factor but the trick is not to look at what you don't have yeah, you mightn't be as fit, you might you might have injured, you might have a bit of arthritis or whatever, but look at what you have and do the best with that. You know, don't don't accept limitations of age or injury. Oh, my back's a bit gone, oh, I'm a bit old, I should slow down. Because once you say that, you've now established a psychological crutch that you yep. will fall yep. back on. Right. And it'll suddenly be okay to not participate in life as fully anymore. So I'm like, fuck that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to participate fully. Yes, there'll be obvious limitations that I have no control over, but I'm not going to look at those. I'm going to look at what I have and just keep striving to be the best I can be. This is the really, really well said. And you should do a TED talk, I think. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. All those ideas. I'm laughing because I've got, my, Judy's the, talk about it. I said to her, how can anybody have an ego being married to you? She's in the kitchen. She's laughing her head off because it's funny. We did a, I did, I had a gentleman come around to the house a little while ago. <laughs> I shouldn't even be saying this. <laughs> and he had to do a little blog on women's self-defense and everything. And I said, oh, okay. Anyway, it turns out he said, oh, I want you to do something on spirituality. You know, how you take the spirituality, the martial arts and apply it to your everyday life. So, and I thought, wow, that's a broad topic. And anyway, I'm off I go to do it. And I said, but I don't want you to put it out there until I see it. I, I You know, I, I what I do know is whatever is out there on celluloid is there forever. And you sure. can't put a yeah, disclaimer sure. saying, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, we do this and he sends me a clip of the film. We're sitting on the couch and I'm paraphrasing now. And I said to Judy, you know, because she's... <laughs> He speaks the truth sometimes too much. <laughs> so we're sitting watching and we're watching this thing and it's, I'm sounding very, you know, very intellectual and spiritual and everything else. And I start talking about driving, you know, and I'm saying, look, if it's like 
when you're driving, you could be caught in traffic and late or whatever, and you could get very anxious and angry and start abusing people, or you just relax and enjoy being in the moment. Oh, there's nice trees I hadn't noticed before a house. And suddenly, like she's sitting a little back from me, all I suddenly hear is, fuck me. <laughs> like, what? She says, I want to meet that guy. She knows what I'm like. Yes, yes. <laughs> Geez, you can talk shit when the cameras are rolling. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there's hey, a bit of a reality check. I, my, wife, my wife does the same thing to me. Same, so, uh, same thing here. <laughs> you must be a Gemini. So. <laughs> She's an Aries, but I'm a Capricorn. But yeah, keep, keeping it real, as they say, as I said, your partner knows you too well. So there you go. Yeah, because I said, your mistake is I'm put here to be your guru in life and you refuse to learn the good things I do. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. That's definitely worth to live I'm your by. guru. <laughs> we, want to, we, want to, we want to be mindful of your time. And I know maybe after we record, we'll, we'll talk a little bit after that. But, um, uh, you know, we want to thank you for taking this time to reflect on your career and talk about what you're currently doing and your martial arts and the journey you've been on. Uh, I think we definitely, those are words to live by as far as never feeling stagnant and always constantly wanting to achieve. Uh, yeah. I know Dustin and I, for one, apply that to ourselves in life. And uh, yeah, you don't get anywhere in life if you don't keep trying to reach those goals and have more goals after the first one. And yeah. as they say, you'll, you'll win some and lose some, but as they say, there's winning and there's not losing. It's just learning. You just learn from it. You try and pick up and, you know, and, but you got to get, you got to have a go. If you don't, you're accepting mediocrity and mediocrity is my least favorite word in the, in the English language. So I think just keep striving, give it a go. And I, I also encourage people, it, it, by the way, it's, it's, it's a simplistic thing to say, but it's not that easy to find. But when you say, just try and find something that you have some passion for because the key is doing something you're passionate about. That's why I brought up about Keith Richards or Edmund yeah. Buckingham or Linda Ronstadt who never stopped trying to find a new voice coach to teach her a new way to hit a certain note or whatever. And this, this continual striving for improvement. But importantly for me, thank God that I found martial arts when I was 11 years of age. Mm -hmm. And I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. And as I said, it's a passion that just makes me want to get up every day, you know, and, and go on YouTube and learn and do all of that. And I just encourage people to try and find something that you have some passion for, whatever it might be. It might be playing chess or tennis or who the hell knows, or doing podcasts like you're doing, you know. Keeps you looking for ways to do it better and express yourself better and get interesting people. I mean, there's nothing better than that. And how exciting is it? You know, it just puts a smile on our faces. So, well, that's what we're hoping. I think we're going to be putting quite a few smiles on people's faces. Yeah, and, uh, that, that is a, it's a perfect way to sum it, sum it up. And uh, we right. want to thank you again. Thank and you so uh, much. definitely the next time I'm in the car and stuck in LA traffic, I will remember what you said, <laughs> whether it be bullshit or not. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you know, I can't help it if everybody else is a moron on the road. I said, that's my fault. Yeah, I, I, she, she reminds me I sort of lost the point a little bit there. I should be, yes, bless you, beautiful. I said, what are you used to having all these skills if you can't use it anyway? You know, you've got to beat on somebody. <laughs> all right, thanks, Dustin. 
All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a four. Is it five star rating? <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and give us a five star rating on iTunes. We really. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five star rating on iTunes. If you listen to us on Spotify, that's great too. And you can find us on the internet. <laughs> Don't forget to check out our website at $2LateFee.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at $2LateFeePodcast. We'll see you next time. We did it. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.